Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13, and also find your way, if you would, this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Matthew 13 and Isaiah chapter 6. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. We come in Matthew chapter 13 to a, an entire chapter devoted to parables on the kingdom, on the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, verse 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17 this morning. We're going to come back next week. Jesus gives the explanation for the parable in verses 18 and following. And so we're not going to really pick the parable apart. We're going to look at the second section. We're going to focus in on 10 to 17 this morning. So if you'll read with me, Matthew 13, 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand? Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. In the Masoretic text in the Hebrew, it's grown fat or lethargic. This people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly... I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we just pray this morning as we listen to you giving your disciples the insight and the instruction as to the reasons for why you teach us in parables. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to understand, that you would open our hearts to see, 
and that we could hear with the hearing of faith and see with the eyes of our heart. And not just hear on a surface level things that the pastor is saying up front, but that your spirit would come and speak to us directly through your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would make them soft and fertile, malleable. We pray, Lord, that when your word comes to us, that it would find in us a place to root, to go down deep, to grow inside of us, to consume us, to produce fruit through us. I have not forgotten, Lord. I have not forgotten what you and I talked about on that bench in San Onofre and the call that you place on my life. And I pray, Lord, that you would place that same call in the hearts and the minds of those who are gathered here today to understand the nature of this relationship, to understand your desire to speak to them and their need to soften their hearts to hear you. I pray, God, that you would work today through your son, through his word, by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you read the Bible through, before too long, you begin to lose count of how many times the Bible speaks to the fact that there are going to be false teachers and false prophets. I mean, you get halfway through the Old Testament and you begin to lose count of the numbers of references that are made about individuals who are going to stand up and presume to speak to you in the name of God, who are going to presume to speak to you and say, listen, this is what God is saying to you. And the Bible references these individuals. He says there will be lots of them and they will be false teachers, false prophets saying things that I did not ask them to say, that I did not commission them to say. They are saying these things to you and it lists a couple of different motivations. It doesn't deny the fact that there will be great, talented, gifted teachers. But it says that the motivation for their teaching will not be to truly honor the Lord or to bring you deeper in your walk with the Lord. Their motivation will be, number one, to fleece you, to take you for your money. The scriptures are replete with warnings of false prophets who are just interested in slaughtering the sheep, the fat sheep, so that they may be fed, so that they may be clothed, so that they may be provided for, and they really don't care for the sheep, they really don't care for the church or the people of God. Number two, they'll use their giftedness, they will use their ability to preach and to teach in such a way as to create an air of sophistication and charm that they might be able to woo and seduce women that they might be able to engage in illicit extramarital sexual relations with women within the church. Number three, that they will use their ability ultimately and most pivotally to make much of themselves, to draw all of the glory, to receive all of the attention, and to focus it on themselves rather than reflecting that back to Jesus. And then Jesus comes full bore, and there are massive warnings, massive warnings on anyone who would in a legitimate way seek to preach and teach to God's people. It says in James that if anyone would presume to be a teacher, if anyone wants to be a teacher, he should take care. And the warning in James is that not many men within the church should strive to be teachers 
makes this statement knowing how much stricter your judgment will be. Indeed, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to make a statement that if anyone would cause one of these little ones, one of these even the smallest, most insignificant little people in the church, a child, a disciple, if anyone would cause that child, that small, the smallest of disciples, to be led astray, that it would be better for him if he had a millstone hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In effect, what Jesus is saying is if you would preach and teach in such a way as to lead people astray, to cause them to sin, that you would be better off committing suicide. Your existence is not a good one. And finally, he caps it all off. In Revelation, he makes a statement, if any of you would take God's word, presuming to teach it, and add to it, or take something away from it. In other words, just to distort it or twist it in even the slightest way. The book of Revelation, talking about the end times and all the plagues and all the disasters that are going to fall in the world, makes this statement that if any of you who would seek to be a teacher or a preacher would take from the word or add to the word or any way distort or twist the word, the plagues that are described in the book will be brought upon your head. And if you take away from the word, your name in the book of salvation is taken away. So there are these massive warnings that come that I feel rather acutely. There are unbelievably high standards placed on anyone who would preach and teach. And I want you to know that I feel those, the weight of that presses on me every week. Let me just run you through what happens on a Saturday in the Clay Camp house. We get up, you know, laundry, chores, whatever, the random stuff that happens that you all do on a Saturday morning. Play with the girls, hang out. Around 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, on a Saturday afternoon, we, if we're out running errands, we need to get home because around 3 or 4 o'clock, my heart begins to shift. Uh, I'm very much there with my daughters. I'm playing. I'm enjoying uh, yesterday, I was actually up in the, in the attic again, doing things. Um, but at 3, 4 o'clock, I, I start to shift. Whatever I've been involved in, whatever I've been engaged in, playing with my daughters, hanging out with my wife, doing insulation in the attic, I shift. And if we're out running errands, you can ask my wife, I start to become an uncomfortable person to be around. First off, I just don't like running errands to start with. So you know, that in and of itself is a problem for her. But if we're out running errands about 3 or 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, I start to pace. I want to get home. I want to get alone with the Bible, and I want to spend the afternoon in prayer. And then that evening, we'll have dinner. We'll put the kids down for bed, and I will go back to the text. I will go back to my sermon manuscripts, and I will begin to pray and to think about what it is that we need to talk about in here on a Sunday morning. That is the call that God has put on me, and I know that every single Sunday when I stand up to preach to you, these words come back on Judgment Day. This sermon is scrutinized by your Father. He loves you so much that He wants me to understand that I need to take this very, very seriously. I have no doubt that also on a Sunday morning when we're setting up and doing all of this, I'm sure you can probably ask the sound, get the, the setup and teardown crew. I'm probably not the happiest person to be around there either because I want to get away. I want to spend time 
with the manuscript. I want to spend time in prayer. I want to spend time just giving my heart to the Lord, asking him to work through me. Now, I feel all of that because I feel that when I stand up to preach to you, you need to be capable of hearing the word of God, understanding the word of God, and it's got to be accurate. Now, whatever you might think of my preaching ability or lack thereof, whatever criticisms or opinions you might have, and I'm not trying to say that I'm perfect. I know I've messed up. I know some sermons are just flops. Let's just be honest, okay? Consider this sermon for a second from Jesus in Matthew 13. Pretend that Jesus is your pastor. Pretend that he is the one behind this pulpit this morning. And this is what he says. He's not going to ask you to turn in your Bible because he is the Bible. He's going to say, turn to me. Okay, everybody turn to me right now. Okay, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. God, open our eyes, open our minds in my own name. Amen. And then he says to you, here's the word for you today. Guy goes out to sow some seed. Some of it falls along the path, bird comes and eats it. Some of it falls uh, in stony, rocky ground. It shoots up right away because there's no depth. It can't put down roots, so it shoots up. Sun comes out, it withers, it dies. Uh, And then some of it, just a small portion, one out of four, uh, will actually take root. One out of four seeds, if you're going to look at it that way, will actually take root and it'll actually produce fruit. Okay, let's have the altar call. God, we thank you for this day today. In Jesus' name, if you have any... In my own name, sorry, my own name. If you haven't been, if you're not a Christian, you know, come on down, pray to receive Christ. And that's a sermon that just took all of about 45 seconds to a minute, depending on how fast he was talking. Probably speak a little slower than me. And as we leave, some of us are going to say, man, that was awesome. What a great message. That was powerful. That was convicting. Another of us will say, man, that was short. I like him for his brevity. I like him for how short and concise and to the point he is. The Sunday school teachers are probably thinking, what is going on down there? We just barely got the snack served. What, you can't be taking the kids now. We, we need time to do our lesson. You get out in the parking lot and people are getting their cars and some of them are going to say, wait a second. Some of us are going to say, wait a second. Uh, what did he just say? Like, What? Did you get that? Yeah, yeah, four soils. Come on, weren't you listening? I was listening. Were you listening? What is he meaning when he says that? That's his sermon. That's his message. He goes in, he preaches. Uh, he's in a boat. He goes out in the, in the Sea of Galilee. He goes out in the sea. He preaches at him. His disciples are listening. He says this spiel. They come to him privately and say, uh, it's clearly a parable. Why do you do that? Why do you teach them in parables? This word parable from the Greek parable, literally to lay alongside. We get our English word parallel from it. It's something that you lay aside. Spiritual truth is intangible. It's, we're talking about things that go on inside the heart, inside the soul. It's, it's harder to just reach and grab a hold of that. It's not like an object you can study or pick apart. It's not like a, a normal piece of human anatomy. It's intangible. It's immaterial. It's the secret you. It's the real you. But it's hard to understand sometimes. And so what Jesus does is he's going to take a story of concrete, clearly able to wrap your mind around it, basic picture, and he's going to take that picture of some event in normal everyday life, and he's going to lay it alongside something that's going on inside your heart as a parallel or a parable, okay? He's going to lay that alongside it so that 
you will be more confused or you will be more informed. They ask him, why do you teach in that way? And his response is, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. So he immediately creates two polar extremes. There's no real middle ground in Jesus' teaching ministry. As far as he's looking at it, he creates two extremes. When I preach and when I teach, I am preaching and teaching to one of two types of people. People who are permitted to understand and people who are not permitted to understand. To you guys, it's been given to know. To them, it has not been given to know. That's exactly what the verse says. To them, it has not been given. Now, that automatically just nails us right between the eyes. Our ability to understand spiritual truth, specifically our ability to understand things pertaining to what's going on inside our own hearts, and our ability to understand what's going on in the kingdom of heaven, those are things which none of us are entitled to. Those are things which none of us can stand up and say, okay, in my own wisdom, in my own intellect, I want to know about heaven, here it is. I'm going to study the topic. I'm going to get on Google. I'm going to Yahoo. Jesus is saying it doesn't work like that. You can Google. You can Yahoo. You can pull out Wikipedia. You can pull out textbooks. At the end of the day, you can even pull out the Bible. And at the end of the day, you will not get it. You will not understand it unless Jesus, unless God the Father chooses for you to understand it. The very next verse is going to allude to the fact that it's up to you how much truth you get, or if the truth you get, even what you have, is taken away. To illustrate all of this, Jesus is going to point to an Old Testament prophet to show what he's talking about, and he's going to quote from the prophet Isaiah. And what's interesting about this quotation is you find it in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You also find it in the book of Acts, and you also find it in the book of Romans. It's quoted six times throughout the New Testament. Everybody seems to come back to this verse. Now, I want you to keep your thumb there, and I want you to flip with me to Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to see it in the context. In Isaiah chapter 6, the nation of Israel, they are engaged in wanton rebellion, wanton idolatry. They are sinning against the Lord. There have been numerous prophets that have come and said, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing that. They have continued to do it. They have disregarded the prophets. And God, he says to himself, we got to get somebody to go and to talk to the nation of Israel one last time. This is about 600 years before the coming of Christ. And if you look in chapter 6, verse 1, it dates it in the year that King Uzziah died. This is Solomon talking. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah has an incredibly powerful experience where he sees God. He sees him high and lifted up. He encounters his presence. And he sees him there, and he sees angels with him. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's immediate reaction, holy cow, I'm a goner. The sight I have just observed is so powerful, so amazing, so infinitely holy, I am confronted with my own sinfulness and my own unworthiness to stand before the Lord, and I know I'm a goner, and I know I live amongst a, bu- amongst a bunch of people who are just like me, and they're goners too. Given that response, and he accurately perceives the holiness of God, you would think that the next verse is the fire falls and Israel is now a footnote in our history books. But that's not what happens. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. This is symbolic language. The altar where things are purified before the Lord, where they're covered with blood, innocent blood. And he touches it to Isaiah's lips so that Isaiah now is declared clean before the Lord, no longer impure. Verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And behold, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Send where? To do what? I've just seen you. I've just been, I've just confronted you, been confronted by you. And your holiness now must fall on this nation and destroy us because we are all wicked sinners. No, 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 no. I need somebody to go. Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I'll go. And verse 9, the verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 13. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on on seeing but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed now it's a command that as Isaiah is preaching to them, the result of his preaching is such that they will not repent. They will not turn away from their sin. Rather, hearing the preaching of Isaiah, they double down in their rebellion. So immediately you're thinking, well, yeah, I've read the book of Isaiah kind of weird. There's some serious things going on there. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not sure what he's saying half the time. That's what was written. But we were not there to actually hear his preaching. If you consider what his contemporaries say about him, and if you consider the criticisms that are leveled against him, which are recorded for us in Isaiah 29, They mocked Isaiah not for being obscure. They mocked Isaiah not for being ambiguous and vague about what he was preaching. No, no, no. The criticism that they make against Isaiah 
is that his teaching is so simplistic, that his instruction is so elementary, that his prophesying on behalf of the Lord is so, so infantile, so basic, that there's no way he could be a prophet. Indeed, their mockery of him is that he would be better served being a kindergarten teacher than presuming to be a prophet of the Lord. Isaiah's prophecies are recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, and they are difficult to understand. But you need to understand that the contemporary preaching of the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel was not vague. It was not ambiguous. It wasn't difficult to understand. They got it. They they thought it was so basic that they ridiculed and mocked him for it. When Isaiah encounters a hardened and stubborn people who are locked in their sin, he doesn't make it harder for them. He tries to make it easier for them to understand. So that when we consider a parable, a parable's primary function indeed isn't to try and convey deep, incomprehensible, inscrutable instruction. The purpose of the parable, its intention is to break it down even more simple. But the response of the people hearing it is to think that it's weird to think that it doesn't make sense, to think that the guy's a loony tune. He's crazy. Isaiah, these are his neighbors. These are his relatives. Indeed, we know that Isaiah is a cousin to the royal lineage of the throne. He's not in line to receive the throne. He's not a direct uh, heir to the throne, but we know he is through, through marriage related We know he lives in Jerusalem. We know that he is there to see all of the rebellion and all of the idolatry. These are not people that he's just sort of preaching to. It's kind of like you and me. I know all of you in this room. I have a relationship with all of you in this room. As he's going around Jerusalem preaching, these are people that he loves, that he knows that he is preaching to because God has called him to do that, number one. And number two, because God in his grace and in his mercy is giving them one more chance. But here's the thing. When God sends Isaiah to preach in the commission that God gives Isaiah, he makes it real clear. When you preach, it will make their hearts harder. When you preach, even though it will seem so simple and so basic and so elementary, you'll feel like you're talking to children. They will take that simplistic message where you have broken it down so easy and they'll ridicule you for it and use that as justification in their mind that you're not really preaching for God, that you're not really prophesying on behalf of the Lord. Isaiah, I want you to go, and I want you to understand that as you preach, it's going to harden them. You know, uh, about six years ago now, my, my predecessor, Donnie, uh, Donnie Spivey, for those of you who are new, he, he planted a church. He, his, 
his mother came down with a significant illness. He ended up moving back to Florida to look after her. And uh, at that point in time, we had done a number of different ways. We, pre- we preached a number of different ways. We did series. We, we had just started a book. We had worked our way through the book of James. I came in August of 2008, and he had done series, like, you know, like a four-part series on parenting, uh, three-part series on how to, how to train, up, train up your child. I'm not even entirely familiar with all the different series that he'd done. When I came, he and I had this really lengthy discussion, and he honestly, and I love Donnie, he's a great friend to me, he, he said to me, honestly, I don't know that preaching these three-part, four-part topical sermon series is really producing fruit in people's lives. I really think what we should probably do is get back to the exegetical, expository preaching of the Word of God and from the moment I got here, the first thing I did was start preparing a study guide. We said we were going to go through the book of James, and then he led us through the book of James. When it was determined that he was going to go home, that he needed to go back and be with his mom, we sat down, we had a really lengthy conversation, and one of the things he said to me, one of the questions he posed to me was, how will you preach? And for me, it was, I'm going to continue what you started. You did James, I'm going to work my way through the rest of the Bible. To which we both laughed and said, that'll take forever. And it was true. And having that discussion, what we understood was that in our own wisdom, we could pull together like a four-part, five-part series on whatever relevant topic there was to talk about, but ultimately there's a lot of us in that and God's word is in that too but there's an awful lot of us in that and we felt that if we just would go through books of the Bible verse by verse chapter by chapter all of those topics all of those issues whether it be uh, you know a two-part sermon series on how to fast or a three-part sermon series on on how to tithe or how to manage your budget or whatever, you know, whatever the issues are, we felt that if we would just go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we would hit those passages in context. And ultimately, it would make way more sense in the context of the whole book, the way the Lord structured it, than in anything we could do to kind of pull stuff together and make these, these sermon series. He agreed. His church that he's at now in Southlake, Florida, the church at Southlake, that's what they do. He showed up there. He was an associate pastor. The lead pastor was still doing these three and four part sermon series. And he was uh, included into the board of elders there. And they had this lengthy conversation. And over the period of about a year and a half, he persuaded and led that church to adopt exegetical verse by verse, chapter by chapter preaching. Their church has grown and flourished under that. Our church has grown and flourished under that. The Lord wants to speak to you. I don't know if you've read the Bible before, if you've really gone through it. It's written at about a sixth grade reading level, grade six reading level. It's not intended to be complicated. It's not intended to be hard. The Lord wants you to understand. He wants to speak to you. The question is not, does God want to speak to you? Because that's obvious. He does. The question is, Are you softening your heart to let his words be heard? 
Jesus' statement here in Matthew 13 is very simple. No one walks away unchanged. Now follow me for a second. Sometimes you guys come to church, and I am not by any means a perfect preacher. Some sermons are not as good as others. We'll leave it at that. Regardless of the quality of the preaching, sometimes we enter into the worship service and we say to ourselves, well, that was really interesting, but it was less applicable to me. You know, this is dealing with something that isn't necessarily relevant to my life. Or or that was really good, and I'm glad so-and-so was here to hear that because that really matters to them, and I hope they got it. And some of us are like, you know what, that was absolutely ridiculous. I couldn't imagine in a million years ever needing to hear that. If any of those responses are true for you when you walk out of here, there are four soils mentioned here. One of them's good, three of them are bad, and if any of those responses are you, you're in one of the bad soils. The, the teaching of Jesus in this passage is extremely challenging and extremely difficult. It confronts all of us in this room. What he is saying is no one walks away unimpacted. No one walks away unchallenged. If you walk out of here thinking to yourself that that just didn't apply to you, what has happened according to the teaching of Christ as he quotes Isaiah is that you were just hardened in your heart. In other words, if you walk out of here thinking that it just didn't apply, it wasn't relevant to you, what has happened is you have hardened and the preaching of this passage has hardened you. Some people were soft, they heard it, they saw the clear connection, how it relates to them, they got it. Others of us, we have to work for it. We're like, no, Lord, I know there's a truth in here. He's talking about children. I'm a single, un, a single you know, lady that's not married, doesn't have kids, but I know that there's a deep truth in here. For some of us, we're like, you know what? He's preaching on budget, finances, whatever. My books are solid. I'm not in debt. I'm good. I don't need to listen. I'm going to check out and check out Facebook right now. I'm going to tune out and get on my iPhone and see what's happening. What is happening is we're all being spiritually impacted. Some of us are deceiving ourselves into thinking that this isn't doing anything to us. But the reality is, for those of us who are thinking that way, it absolutely still is. You're developing and cultivating a heart that will not be sensitive to the Lord's truth. Anytime the book is open and anytime the sermon is preached, sure, there are things which may be more directly and more immediately, obviously necessary to your hearing, to your heart, but it is all necessary and it is all relevant. And when you walk out of here saying that didn't matter to me, Jesus just said it did, but not in a way that you're going to like. He tells a parable. It's a weird thing. He doesn't give any explanation. The disciples come to him and like, why do you do that? He says, you're asking what this means. That's good. You want to know that's good. For those of you who are following up, for those of you who are digging to the bottom of it, to you, it has been given to know. To all the rest who thought he just told some weird story or that it didn't apply or that it was irrelevant or that it didn't matter, he says about them, they were hardened by what they just heard. Quoting Isaiah, 
make their heart dull. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This heart, this people's heart has grown dull. They can't see anything, or else they would turn, and I would heal them. Now that's a powerfully convicting message. I have in my life, as a preacher, to my shame, become something of a critic on other preachers. You just can't help it sometimes. You sit down and you're like, eh, I don't know that I would say it that way. Or, uh, I would have led into that story slightly differently. Or that was a great cliffhanger, but he botched it. Or that joke fell flat. And I know because I've been all of that. My awesome, witty jokes you guys just don't appreciate sometimes. Like, my incredibly powerful and emotionally moving stories, you guys are just like, Now, the stories, the jokes, whatever. I'm obviously not going to ever write script for Jay Leno or anything like that. I'm not going to be like a joke teller. But this is no joking matter. In every message, in every sermon, there's something to see, something to hear, something to receive. And you have to apply yourself to all of it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. To the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. So to the one that seeks to understand spiritual truth, and to the one that trains his heart and disciplines his heart to continue to search after spiritual truth, to continue to grasp spiritual truth, Jesus says that person has, he already has, and I will give him more. Now, for the person who does not train his heart and who is not actively seeking after spiritual truth, look at what he says. From the one who has not. In other words, they think they have, but they don't. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, that verse understood in light of the quotation from Isaiah. What Jesus is saying is that your heart will harden or your heart will soften to hear the preaching of God's word if you harden your heart. It's possible for you to think that you're getting it. And even while you think you're getting it, your understanding is being diminished the Spirit's capacity to illuminate the text is being restricted, and even what you think you're understanding will become twisted and distorted. And most often, this is how it presents. The Bible says to do X. Whatever X is, it doesn't matter. Here is the verse. 1 Corinthians, whatever, whatever. The Bible says, Jesus says, Scripture says that you as a person should do X. Well, I know that the Bible says that. But really, like what was going on in the first century? What was the context of that situation? Well, the church in Corinth, you know, they had this giant temple and they worshipped this goddess, Aphrodite, and all this kind of stuff. And they had these temple prostitutes and blah, blah, blah. It was horrific. It was like basically the worst place ever. Okay. Well, so then if I'm ever in the worst place ever with a temple, with temple prostitutes and all this kind of stuff, then maybe that verse will apply to me. No. No. 
well, what's the context of this particular passage? Well, this individual is having this struggle with their relationship with their mom or whatever, back and forth. Mary and Mary are going, well, okay, if I'm ever in a room with Jesus arguing with my sister, then maybe this will apply. We do this. We play these games where we can take the very basic, very surface level, root meaning of the passage and we can argue ourselves out of it so that we think we get it. We tell ourselves, no, I understand this text. I get it. I understand the context. I understand the historical background. I understand the languages that they were even speaking in. And you know what? It doesn't somehow, all of that adds up to, it doesn't apply. So that we think we understand it, but we've really just talked ourselves into a sense of stupidity where we will not soften our hearts. We will not ask, Lord, the basic truth here in this text, does this apply to me? Is there some way I could possibly improve? Not necessarily that I'm doing a horrific job, but is there some way I could become more consistent in my walk with you? See, those are the right questions to ask. And arguments about context and applicability and what does it really mean, those are all the wrong things. And you say, well, why? Why should this matter to me? Because look at how he finishes his teaching to the disciples. Verse 16. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. And he carries it on. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. And th this is just a classic basic line that I think perfectly illustrates the whole thrust of what Jesus is saying. We in the church use this word blessed. I'm blessed. You're blessed. What a blessing. And we overuse the word so much so sometimes I think that we lose sight of what it means. What does it mean to be blessed? It means that you are the recipient of something that produces happiness, joy, pleasure in your life that God has given to you. So God has bestowed some favor, some kindness upon your heart that brings you happiness. Now what Jesus has just said here is you are happy because you get to see. You are blessed. You receive joy. You receive pleasure because you get to hear. In other words, the hearing and the seeing is awesome because through hearing and through seeing, we receive happiness because in the seeing and in the hearing, we get to know Jesus better. And in knowing Jesus better, we get more joy, more happiness. His statement to them is like, lots of guys wanted to hear this stuff. Lots of guys longed to see this stuff. He goes on, truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, they longed to see it. They wanted to see it. They desired to see it. But you, you actually get to see it. And so you are blessed. Up until the arrival of Christ, you got Isaiah rolling around preaching. People are rejecting him. Eventually, he's going to be martyred as a result of his preaching. They are so fed up with him that they decide to kill him. It's still happening to Christians today all around the world. God loves you. He wants to begin a personal relationship with you. I am sick of hearing that, and you, I think I will kill you. And what Jesus is saying is something that we get, something that is available to us that was not available in its fullness or in its entirety, the prophet Isaiah, is we get a personal, intimate relationship 
we can go deeper in that relationship and we are blessed. We have the opportunity for joy if we will. We have the opportunity to have more pleasure if we will go deeper, soften our hearts and hear more clearly and strive to hear more clearly what the scriptures are saying to us. At the end of the day, the issue is one of pleasure. Do you want to be as happy as you can possibly be? Do you want to be as joyful and as satisfied in life as you can possibly be? See, the opportunity that is presented is one for incredible pleasure in knowing Christ. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. And so I'm not sitting here saying, well, you ought to do this. And if you're hearing what Joshua is saying is we have to do this or we ought to do this, then you're already in the wrong soil category. What I am offering you is the pleasure to have something supernatural, powerful, and delightful put in your hearts to take root that will bring you joy. Joy which wasn't available to everyone, but it is available to you. Some of you say, well, man, you have a tremendous call of God on your life to preach, and I do. It is tremendous and overwhelming and weighty. And I feel that. But there is an even more tremendous call of God upon your life to be soft, to hear. And the relationship that is taking place in this room week after week, Sunday after Sunday, is one in which I know I am accountable for saying things the way that God would have them to be said. And you are accountable for hearing all of those things the way God would have you to hear them. So are we listening? Are we seeking to understand? Because what's going to come next in the rest of Matthew chapter 13 is a series of parables. And it will be very easy to miss it for some of us. And for some of us, it will be very, very easy just to see it for what it is. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how well I preach the sermon. It doesn't matter what kinds of interesting anecdotes or stories I tell. It matters whether or not you in your own personal walk with the Lord are asking him to open your eyes to hear, to see, to reveal the truth to you. I can preach all day long, and the net result of it is simply that you will be hardened even more. And that frightens me to think that that might be the truth of it. What I want through my preaching is for you to know undiminished and unparalleled happiness and pleasure in knowing Christ. And I pray that that's your heart. Let's close for a word of prayer.